Te Marie, welcome to First Up. It's Rāpere, Thursday the 18th of August, Kornik Trubridge Aho. Coming up, we hit Sweden and the UK for our regular catch-ups. There's a state of emergency in Nelson and the West Coast after torrential rain caused widespread flooding yesterday. And guess what? More's on the way. More on that. Nelson's mayor will join us. Why the Chatham Islands are becoming a sought-after location for the country's tourists. And Deputy PM Grant Robertson gives us his take on the Garuv Shurma saga. Undoubtedly, these things being in the public arena and people being drawn in, staff and MPs, is not good. Dr Sharma chose to take his issues into the public arena. In doing so, he undoubtedly breached our caucus rules and there are consequences for that. Atamaria and welcome to Thursday's First Up. A wee correction in the intro, of course, we were talking about scientists visiting the Chatham Islands as opposed to tourists. Uh, probably a good place to visit as a tourist, though. I haven't been there, but apparently it's awesome. Uh, scientists visiting the Chatham Islands, we'll have more on that soon. But in the meantime, we're going to begin in the United Kingdom, where the Conservative Party's leadership roadshow has hit Northern Ireland and inflation has hit yet another record high. With me now from London is Henry Riley. Morena Henry. Hello Nick. Good evening from the UK. Nice to talk to you. Let's start with that inflation figure. It's uh, the talk of the economic sphere here, but it's the talk of the economic sphere where you are as well. What's it up to? It's up to 10.1%. Now, that's significant because that is obviously double-digit inflation. That is the first time the UK has hit double-digit inflation since February 1982. So over 40 years, uh, it's the highest level it has been. And it's worrying a lot of people. It's not just worrying politicians. It's worrying regular people uh, on the streets. People don't know how they're going to continue to pay their energy bills. When you contrast it with average earnings, average earnings have gone up by about 4% on average this year across the UK. Now, when you consider inflation is now at 10%, that means a 6% cut effectively for people. People are losing money and prices are going up. Now, what has driven this figure to 10.1% to cause it to go into a double-digit inflation? Well, the main answer is food. Energy, petrol and diesel have also been a contributing factor. But there are various food items that have gone up so significantly in value, they've really sort of pushed that uh, inflation up. I won't give you a list of my shopping basket, but just to give you the top three, uh, bread, cereal and milk in particular have risen in price and are really pushing up the overall price of inflation. Toilet rolls have gone up again, which is a sort of, uh, you know, earmark to the start of the pandemic when everyone was panic buying. But uh, they've they've uh, pushed inflation up significantly. But when you compare it to other G7 nations like the US, like Canada, like France, like Germany, we're in a much worse situation and our inflation is significantly higher. And understandably, politicians are under pressure in the UK to explain why. Is your shopping basket looking slightly different, Henry? Are you, are you, I don't know, swapping out whole meal for your standard white loaf? Yeah, well, I, genuinely, you know, people are buying, and one cabinet minister in the UK got in trouble for saying you should start buying own branded food instead of your big, you know, your big mm. brands that everyone knows, and, you know, got under pressure for it. But actually, th- there is some sense in it, and I'm very acutely aware of the sort of prices I'm paying. And every week I'm going into my local supermarket, I won't name them, uh, and the prices every week are going up, and, you know, it's 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 becoming difficult for people. Sure is. Uh, and you're still on track to hit 13% by Christmas, are you? That's sort of been forecasted. Is that still the case that's right many leading economists saying it will hit 13 percent by christmas i mean we were at 9.1 percent 
uh, in April, 9.4% in June. Now in July, we're 10.1%. So the sort of the trend is certainly on a, on a pretty certain trajectory. And the economists today suggesting that the 10.1% figure shows we're well on the way to at least the high 12%, uh, if not the 13% by Christmas. In the meantime, uh, there's a there's a leadership race going on, isn't there? It's still dragging on. The Conservative Party is, of course, what we're talking about. They're in Northern Ireland at the moment and a little bit of controversy. Yeah, this has been going on for so long now. Uh, this is the eighth hustings out of 12. Who thought it'd be a good idea to have 12 hustings? I've got absolutely no idea. Uh, and it's, it's dragging on. And, you know, going back to our first conversation, Nick, obviously there is such a key you know, conversation and worry in the UK about the cost of living crisis. Mm. And it doesn't look great when you've got the Conservatives sort of battling it out. You know, today they're in Belfast in Northern Ireland doing a hustings for a couple of hours, sort of ripping chunks out of each other. And this sort of public criticism, many people are going, well, hold on, these guys need to get around the table and sort out the cost of living crisis. Our Prime Minister's on holiday. He was pictured topless today on some sort of beach in Greece. So he's uh, obviously having a great time. But uh, yeah, they were in Northern Ireland today. Northern Ireland is one of the key issues in the UK. It's very controversial because of the post-Brexit protocol. And, uh, and you know, the various candidates have been sort of attacked for being there. The Conservative Party don't have a big presence in Northern Ireland, but nonetheless, they've been to show their sort of solidarity with the rest of the UK. But one of the main parties in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, in fact, they won the last elections saying it's insulting for the Tories to be there. And quite frankly, they should go home. Hey, thanks, Henry. Henry uh, Riley there, beaming in from the UK. Yeah, the Prime Minister on a beach somewhere, the incumbents tearing strips off each other while the people struggle. Not a great look. Uh, right, let's go to a little bit of uh, feedback now. It's, uh, where are we? 11 minutes past five. You're on first up with RNZ National. And we want to hear from you if you're on the West Coast. Well, if you're anywhere, really, are you affected by the weather? Uh, Not a lot of sleep in our house. It felt like the roof was about to blow off. Uh, I was asked to go and get the table and chairs off the deck because they were rattling around. I stuck my head out the window and thought, it doesn't look very safe out there. So I went back to bed and then my partner got up and said, you're soft and went and took them in for me instead. So, um, yeah. Did you get up in the middle of the night? Did you brave the weather? Did you have to tie anything down? You can text us 2101. Tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at firstuprnz. In the United States, one one of former President Trump's biggest critics has lost her bid to remain the Republican Party's candidate for Wyoming. Uh, for Wyoming's seat in Congress, rather. Liz Cheney, who is the vice chair of the January 6th committee, lost to, new, lost to a newcomer and Donald Trump uh, ally Harriet Hageman, who has publicly backed Trump's baseless claims over the 2020 presidential election. Sean Dilley has this report. I did not do this on my own. Obviously, we're all very grateful to President Trump. Victory at the primaries for Harriet Hageman, Donald Trump's preferred candidate. Bitter defeat for Liz Cheney, one of two Republicans to join a congressional committee investigating the 45th president's attempts to remain in power after the 2020 elections. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. 
fighting talk. But that sounds somewhat weaker now that the three-time congresswoman has been defeated by Harriet Hageman, who has publicly backed baseless claims by Donald Trump that the election was rigged. Donald Trump congratulated the victor on Truth Social, the platform he created after his exile from Twitter. And in his typically pugnacious tone, he wrote of Liz Cheney, now she can finally disappear into the depths of political oblivion, where I'm sure she'll be much happier than she is now. This, though, is precisely the confrontational style that's proved popular in Wyoming, where 70% of voters backed Mr Trump in 2020. And so this is a result that has surprised no one. She was supposed to represent us, and she knows we all support Trump, and she chose not to, so bye-bye. She, I think, was so singular focused on the, the whole Trump, uh, you know, taking down Trump that I think she took her eye off the ball. Politics are local. All 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump after his supporters attacked the U.S. Capitol building in January last year have been subjected to what U.S. commentators are calling a scorched earth campaign of revenge. Four have retired, and as with Liz Cheney in Wyoming, the remaining three have been defeated by Mr Trump's preferred candidates in primary elections in Michigan, Washington State and South Carolina. The former president is wrestling with a number of high-profile legal matters, including the FBI's raid on his Florida home earlier this month. Despite some unsubtle hints, he's yet to say whether he will run, but if he does, he'll take comfort from the results so far that show the Republican appetite for his style of politics is strong. The BBC's Sean Dilly there. We're going to go to Europe now. I'm joined from Sweden by a correspondent, Anita, Anita Purcell-Sherland. Morning, Anita. Good morning, Nick. Good evening. Nice to talk to you. You know you're on the wrong side of history, don't you, when you make friends with North Korea. But uh, that is what the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic of Ukraine has done. Fill us in on that. Well, the Russian-backed self-appointed leader, Denise Pushilin, has written to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un a letter pledging what he calls beneficial bilateral cooperation. Pushilin's letter comes after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Moscow and Pyongyang would expand relations. Pushilin's previously said he hoped for fruitful cooperation and increased trade with North Korea. Now, last month, Russia's ambassador in Pyongyang said North Korean labor could be sent to help rebuild the war-shattered infrastructure of the self-proclaimed People's Republic in Donetsk and um, in Luhansk. We spoke earlier in the week about these wildfires around Europe, and there's been a dramatic escape from a train in Spain, I believe. Yep, 10 passengers were hurt, three seriously injured when they tried to escape a train trapped in a sweeping wildfire northwest of Valencia. The 48 passengers were en route from Valencia to Zaragoza in the north when the fire brought the train to a halt. The passengers were asked to remain on board, but some panicked. And as the train driver prepared to reverse the train, some broke windows in an attempt to escape the flames with some suffering serious burns. And Valencia is the latest region to experience severe forest fires during Spain's uh, Spain's heat wave, which has sent tens of thousands of acres of woodlands destroyed. We'll go to Poland. There's been a freak mass death of fish. Tell us why. 
Well, over 500 firefighters recovered 100 tons of dead fish from the Oder River running through Germany and Poland, and the cause for the mass death is, is unknown. The firefighters used dams, boats, quad bikes, and a drone to recover the dead fish. The Oder River is 140 kilometers long and runs from the Czech Republic to the Baltic Sea along the border between Germany and Poland. Now, in Germany, districts have banned swimming in the Oder River, and speculations of the cause of the mass death range from chemical waste being dumped into the river to possible natural causes such as lower water levels, high temperatures leading to higher concentrations of pollutants and salinity. And protests continuing in Greece and Athens specifically against this new metro station. What's the latest from Greece? Well, residents of the capital's downtown district of Exarchia Square are continuing this blockade. And on Wednesday, resident protesters arrived at the historical square early in the morning to stop construction workers who were ordered to work at four o'clock in the morning. Now, the face-off started last week when heavily armed police units arrived to stand guard against the erected metal uh, barricades. And um, Izakia is known for resistance, left-wing solidarity, radicalism and anarchism. And the district is regarded as a den of lawlessness. And the centre-right government has tried to clean up the district. And Izakia residents say the metro line is the last stop in a gentrification scheme aimed at altering the um, historically left-wing area. Thanks, Anita. Anita Purcell-Sherland joining us there from Sweden. It's coming up 19 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, Nelson is in a state of emergency and at least 70 properties, 70 have been evacuated. We speak to Mayor Rachel Reeves for the latest. And one of the most remote parts of the world is buzzing because a science festival is in town of all things. We speak to a participant from Otago who tells us why she's there and the reason her team has uh, taken along a mobile planetarium. That's right, they've put it in the plane and they've taken it along to where? You'll find out shortly. Kiwi Bank customers will be able to track how much what they buy is contributing to the climate crisis. The bank has partnered with carbon management organisation Kogo, who help people to help people rather reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by spending their money in a climate-friendly way. I asked Kogo's founder and chief executive, Ben Gleisner, how the scheme works. We process banking data and turn every transaction into a carbon footprint and then allow individuals and businesses to take action to reduce that footprint by giving them recommendations on things like, hey, you're spending a lot on petrol. Have you thought about an electric car? So are you able to tell well, me or or someone else, uh, if they buy, I don't know, soy milk instead of cow's milk, how many many emissions they're saving? That's coming. So we're able to tell you if you buy from, say, I don't know, Marks and Spencers in the UK or over at Woolies in Australia, where you were yet to launch the product for, for consumers in New Zealand. But in those markets, we're able to tell you if you were a vegetarian or if you were a vegan or if you didn't eat red meat, what the average person would be in terms of a carbon footprint when they bought $100, say, at a supermarket. So we're able to tell you your average footprint based on your diet. We will in time. Uh, we've actually want to deal with a, with a large supermarket, can't name it, that will then allow you to see your carbon footprint at that product level. But for now, it's things like you could reduce your energy, you could reduce the amount of petrol. Like it's those things that you can see based on the banking data. How on earth did you come up with this? Like what, what's your background? What got you interested in this space? I did my um, master's on 
carbon markets and, and I guess, climate change policy in 2005 at the CUNY here in Wellington, and uh, then went to work at the government for seven years at the Treasury, working on international and domestic climate change policy. And I think it was probably 2010, flying around the world, causing more climate change than we were solving at the UN meetings. I decided we've got to solve this not uh, sitting around in rooms and talking about it. And so 2010, a couple of people, me me and my co-founder, set up a charity called Conscious Consumers, and it's sort of been evolving ever since then. I guess to what extent do you think people, uh, well, not, not realising their emissions through their purchases is contributing to the current climate crisis? Yeah, I think people are realising now that every single choice that you make has some sort of a carbon impact or a climate impact. And I think our other job we've been tasked to do, I suppose, um, is to help people understand what that impact is, you know, how much more carbon is being emitted when you spend $100 on a flight compared to $100 at the supermarket. So it's that ability to give people and businesses information to help them, I suppose, make, make more informed choice. Have you been able to measure emissions reductions that customers have been able to achieve? Do you have any examples or or are you able to sort of shed some light on that? Yeah, hundreds and thousands. Um, So we have have more than about 2 million people now from around the world. So we've got a big team in the UK. We just signed up this Dutch bank that's gone live into Asia, into Australia. And, you know, we're, we're announcing now that Kiwi Bank's our first partner here in New Zealand. So it'll soon be available for, for small businesses. But yeah, we see like literally in real time people making choices like, for example, 10% of females have decided to look at rental fashion and secondhand fashion for the first time. So we're able to see people buying certain types of, say, secondhand or rental fashion for the first time. We've seen 5% of people switch from non-renewable to renewable electricity in the UK. And so, and it just goes on. Like the amount of, I guess, demand there is for living a climate-friendly life, it just continues to grow. And I think what people have been looking for is a solution that makes that easy. You mentioned the Kiwi Bank partnership. What does that mean for, for you and your crew? Yep, very happy to announce Kiwi Bank a couple of weeks ago talked uh, about a new product that they'll be launching, which allows small businesses that bank with Kiwi Bank to help them measure and reduce their carbon footprint and also be able to give them loans. So basically providing them with green finance to support them to reduce those emissions. So as a small business or a business banking with Kiwi Bank, actually not just the small ones, but any business banking with Kiwi Bank will soon be able to access really good value loans to support them to reduce the carbon footprint. So you basically, as a business, plug in your financial data, COCO calculates the carbon footprint and then recommends things that you can do as a business to reduce it. Kiwi Bank turn up and say, we can finance that and they'll be able to measure the carbon footprint that's reduced due to, say, an EV fleet being rolled out or a new solar panel installation going on the roof of your retail store. So it's, it's the first of its kind and Kiwi Bank have taken some leadership in there, which is great. Head of COGO, Ben Gleisner there. Joining us now from the business team, as he does, yeah, well, at least every morning this week, Anan, how are you? Morena, very well, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad, getting through, well, almost there, we're almost there, almost Friday. Uh, but let's see the light. I know, I know. Hey, let's look at the Reserve Bank, a fairly, uh, I guess, predictable rate OCR rise yesterday. Uh, what do you make of all of that? Yeah, um, 
As, as expected, yes. Uh, you know, the Reserve Bank lifted the cash rate by 50 basis points or by half a percentage point. Uh, so we're now at 3%. Uh, look, economists uh, are expecting the rate to hit 4% uh, at the, as a maximum. Um, but opinion is uh, split on how the bank or how the central bank will get to 4%. Now, A and Z uh, believe it'll mean more aggressive 50 basis point hikes in October and November and thinks there's an outside chance of a smaller rise early next year. They're saying that domestic inflation, so your tight labour market, for example, isn't showing any sign of easing. And the RBNZ uh, just can't afford to let up with interest rate hikes. Now, on the other hand, ASB uh, believe the central bank is getting to the point where it needs to pay greater attention to the economic numbers coming through. So they see uh, a 50 basis point hike in October as well. But from uh, for them to slow up the rate of increases in November and February, and they reckon the latter meetings are the fine-tuning part of this uh, monetary policy tightening cycle. Now, there were some interesting comments uh, from the Reserve Bank Governor, Adrian Orr. He thinks house prices are now at a more sustainable level and believes that it'll fall 20% from its peak in November last year. Uh, He also thinks borrowers uh, should be able to cope with higher interest rates now. As for those mortgage rates, uh, look, don't expect much to be passed through. Uh, we heard from CoreLogic, the property research firm. They said that the OCR uh, has already been priced in to current mortgage rates and certainly in the short-term fixed rates. If you're on a floating, that might be a different story. Um, and with less spending nowadays, or less lending rather nowadays, um, due to the slowing housing market, banks are are actually focusing on existing borrowers and trying to keep that market share. Mm, tricky times indeed. Uh, thanks, Anand. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Right, so the Chatham Islands, uh, there's a population there of just under 800 people. But this week, there are a few more people roaming around. That's because researchers and science professionals from more than a dozen organisations have flown in to participate in the Chatham Islands Festival of Science. I spoke to Tahura Otago Museum Science Engagement Manager, what a title, Jessa Bada, who's there with her team. She started by telling me a little bit about the festival. So the festival is actually the the brainchild of David Johnston um, out of Massey University, um, Professor David Johnston. And he's established the Sarewika, the science house here, sort of celebrating all of that science. And so he sort of came up with this idea to do a, a Chatham Islands Festival of Science. And we came into contact with him through our sort of interest in bringing our science engagement activities out to the Chathams. Primarily, it started with our Far From Frozen Climate Change Showcase, for which we partnered with MB and NIWA to develop a hands-on sort of series of interactives that people can use to understand how climate change is happening um, through the lens of the science that's being conducted in Antarctica. And we had hoped to bring that out in 2020. Of course, we all know what happened. And then in 2021, Still couldn't get out to the Chathams, and so we were looking for an opportunity, and we connected with David, and he said, well, why don't you come out and bring all of those activities with you? Um, and it 
just so happened to time really well with the completion of um, a brand new planetarium show. And of course, we have a portable planetarium we can bring. So we brought that with us. And then kind of at the same time, um, we partnered with the University of Otago's research project called Solar Tsunamis. And Solar Tsunamis is looking at how massive space weather events can affect the New Zealand electrical grid and gas pipelines. And to do that, they actually have to collect data from all over the country. And one of the the really interesting things about the Chatham Islands is that they are at a latitude that is comparable to the South Island, but they're a different longitude. And so the researchers on that project thought, hey, it would be really, really cool if we could get data from the Chathams. So let's see if we can deploy an instrument there and get the folks engaged with the science around sort of geomagnetic induction of currents and space weather and sort of solar activity. And so all of these things sort of combined in this perfect storm, which has enabled us to bring stuff around magnetism and geomagnetism. The team from the university we brought with us is deploying a magnetometer. They've been given permission and they're going to be doing uh, talks. We're going to be visiting with schools. Kids are going to get an opportunity to sort of build their own model of a metal organic framework with McDermott Institute, who's looking at how nanotechnology can help mitigate some of the effects of climate change. We're going to look at some really cool stuff around fiber optics and lasers um, with our partners at the Dog Wall Center, who do research into photonics. So it's all meant to be really hands-on and really exciting for everybody, doesn't matter what your age is, and just sort of embrace all of the different ways that science can help us learn about the world around us. You mentioned a, a planetarium. Are you saying you've got a you've got a mobile planetarium that you've taken over? Explain. People might not even know what that is. Explain what that is. Yeah, so that's our Star Lab. Um, it's one of our most popular engagement platforms, and it is essentially a big canvas bubble that we keep aloft with a fan, and inside it creates a perfect dome, not unlike the dome in our full dome planetarium in the museum. The difference is this weighs a lot less and is transportable. And we also have a digital projector that projects across the dome in that 360 view. So NIWA have actually done the heavy lifting on the development of this new planetarium show that looks at the impact of climate change on our oceans. And we're bringing that and it will be the first public viewing of it here on the Chathams. I'm sure it feels quite intrepid sort of taking your work to somewhere like the Chathams. Have you been there before? I have not. So this is my first time. In fact, for the team, it's everybody's first time coming out here. So we're all pretty excited to land and see the place in the flesh for ourselves. We've been planning it for months. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about the flight. How was the flight? How was the journey? The flight was amazing. The in-flight crew are awesome. We did have a 24-hour delay um, due to some scheduled maintenance. And so the maintenance was scheduled. It took a little bit longer to address the issues. It's a small fleet, but everybody was super professional. The communication was great. The flight was really beautiful. We had a beautiful day for it. It was a clear, not much wind. So, And it was really fun to sort of see the islands come towards you from the ocean you know you're surrounded by ocean and then all of a sudden there's this island out there and and yeah it's beautiful it's really i'm really excited to be here yeah what are you looking forward to most because i mean as you say it must be pretty exciting to be able to do your job in such a location 
Mm. I am honestly really excited to meet the kids, meet the school kids. We'll be um, hopefully making a visit to Pitt Island where there's a small school as well. And then we'll be seeing the two schools based on Chatham Island. Night one tonight for you guys, obviously. Uh, What's on the agenda on the island before you hook into things tomorrow? Is it setting up tonight? Is it trying some of the local fare? Yes, yes. And in addition to that, as soon as I hop off the phone with you, I'm going to skedaddle on down to the um, the Hotel Chathams and Pub, where we will be doing a couple of pub talks, which are very important because on Friday, we're going to host a pub quiz. So hopefully the, the islanders and, well, anyone who attends, attends all of our pub talks and all of our, our other public fora so that we uh, they will win the pub quiz uh, on Friday night. Otago Museum's Jess Abada there, a pub quiz on the Chathams on Friday night. That sounds cosy, doesn't it? That sounds like fun. Anyway, uh, we're going to go to Nelson, uh, which is in a state of emergency, and uh, welfare centres also been set up for people needing to leave their homes because there are a few of them. The Mai Tai River beat, breached its banks on Wednesday afternoon, and around 70 properties were evacuated immediately. The city's mayor, well, she's in for a busy day, really, isn't she? Rachel Rees, she's with us now. Morena, Rachel. Uh, morning and Nick. Yes, it will be a busy day after a really busy day yesterday. <laughs> I, I bet. Uh, can you just bring us up to speed? What's the latest? What's the news from overnight? Look, the news from overnight is that we've had uh, about 223 properties evacuated from uh, streets adjacent to the Maitai River. And overnight, we've had to evacuate another 10 properties on the Tūnanui Hills because we've had a slope failure there. So we've had to, um, as a precaution, um, just evacuate properties around that area. The rain has continued, uh, not at the intensity that it was yesterday, but it's expected to pick up again today. So we're just going to have to watch those rivers. Um, We're not expecting them to get to the flow that they were yesterday, but but, uh, across the district, Rewok is probably the river that we're watching the most for today. I was listening to the news earlier, and this is another flood event, rain event, that's been labelled one in 100 year. These seem to be becoming well, relatively prevalent. It must be a worry for local authorities. Uh, look, it's the um, impact of intense rainfall events, and we saw this coming through. The challenge is that with all the best weather um, forecasting, you know, rain moves, and in this case it, it came in a slightly different direction, um, got to one point and then it just stalled and um, down came the rain with, with real intensity. And I think that for all of us in local government, you know, if we think about what our natural hazard risk is, floods are right up there at the top of it and we're just getting hammered. I think essentially, um, you know, if I was thinking about impacts of climate change, this is the one that's here right now. Obviously your infrastructure is built to a certain, uh, you, you know, it has capacity built into it for these events, but is it enough? I think we need to really look across the country at the investment that's been made in uh, flood infrastructure. I know I'm a, a part of the region sector of uh, LGNZ, Local Government New Zealand, and we've been advocating for um, quite some time to get greater central government investment into um, our flooding infrastructure, and that, that matter isn't going to get any less. It's only going to grow. Any more evacuations? Uh, I think what, 70 properties at the moment. How many families would that be roughly? And, geez, I mean... The outlook for the, well, the immediate future isn't good in terms of the weather, is it? So when might they be able to go back? Uh, look, we start the assessment as soon as we get into daylight. So we've got the USAR team here. They'll be out with fire and emergency and they'll be doing a triage of those properties. So they'll get in there as quickly as they can. 
and then we'll have uh, council. The council teams will need to go through and do do the checking to make sure buildings are safe to get back into. So we just want to say to people, please don't come back into the area areas that have been evacuated um, today until we've, we've, we let you know about that assessment and where things are at. And, and for everybody, um, look, real request today, um, if people can stay home, um, work from home, that would really help us. Many of the schools are closed. We, our state highway is, is currently closed. So we're operating through um, essentially one network into the city. It's, um, it's, uh, it's um, a route that is not designed for heavy traffic, but it's taking it at the moment. So, look, anything that people can do today to stay off the roads would be appreciated. They should expect the delays if they're moving, and our recommendation is that they should be taking uh, you know, food and water and warm clothes with them. So, good day to stay home. Um, let the teams get out there and do the very best they can get, do to get people back in their homes. Um, it'll still be a very busy day. Thanks, Rachel. Rachel Rees there, uh, Nelson City Mayor, with the latest on the weather down there. It's 20 minutes to six. I'm Nick Trubridge, and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, Hamilton locals what tell us what they think of Dr Gaurav Sharma's being suspended from the Labour caucus, and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson weighs in on the Sharma issue, and much more. The professionals of Morning Report are with us after six and with us for a quick preview of the most epic news programme in the land is Susie Ferguson. Morena. I feel that that's a very big build-up. Kia ora, how are you? It, it's, it's true. I, I speak only the truth. <laughs> what What's on? Well, we're going to be talking about the situation down in Top of the South. Hundreds of Nelson residents spending the night away from home. The Mai Tai River bursting its bank and more than 200 properties evacuated there. So it's a state of emergency for for Nelson and also for the West Coast. We'll bring you the very latest from the area. Also, Ian Foster getting unanimous support to remain as coach until next year's World Cup. A uh, bit of a discussion on that one. And more on these new speed cameras that Waka Kotahi is uh, bringing in, hoping to triple, expecting to triple the number of drivers caught offending. All of that is coming up after six o'clock. How's the weather in Welly? Sort of a bit meh. I mean, yeah. not that bad, oh, I don't think. So I, don't, no, I haven't left no, the house today, though, I should so, say. So normal. <laughs> so just normal, yeah. yeah, yeah it's just normal welling to Welly. It's not yeah. that cold, so it's not that normal. Yeah. Hey, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Susie. Uh, morning report in... 15 minutes, bang on 15 minutes actually. Uh, Well it's been a tough week in politics as you'll all know for the governing Labour Party with Hamilton West MP Gaurav Sharma suspended for publicly accusing colleagues of bullying, something that's uh, been stringently denied very much so by his party. We sent our producer Tom Taylor to the streets of his electorate where to, to hear rather what people make of the situation with their embattled MP. Well, it's hard to know, really, because we don't really get a full picture of what's going on. But, yeah, I mean, he's got some issues, and I think it's a bit of both, a bit both sides, to be honest. So, yeah. Do you think he can still make a difference in Hamilton despite this? Oh, I think it's going to be pretty hard. He's going to lose any power, any influence he had, I think. Now he's out of the, well, probably out of the parliament, out of the, out of the um, party. So, yeah, I think it'll be a bit of a struggle for him. I, I don't see where he can go from here, to be honest. What do you make of the whole way Labour has handled this and the way it's played out? Not good. Yeah, it's not a good look. They seem to be just trying to sweep it under the carpet, so, yeah. 
Uh, that, that's not a good look, I don't think. I don't think we've got the whole story side. I've got no comment. <laughs> I think that for ambitious backbenchers going into Parliament is probably a bit of a disappointment, don't you? Bit of a muck-up, I'd say. Bit of a mix-up. Uh, yeah, outspoken people, but... Do you think there's any telling kind of who's in the right here? You wouldn't know. We don't know what's behind the scenes. He's not saying any. He's not giving any evidence, so I don't think he's doing the right, saying the right things. If you say something, you have to produce evidence to say what he's saying. But he's not said anything about that. He's just saying they bullied. I mean, it's not fair to accuse somebody to bully and not produce any evidence for bullying, is it? <laughs> Do you think now that he's suspended, can he still make a difference for the city or for Hamilton West? I hope so. If he comes up with the truth, he can. Tom, Ta- Tom Taylor speaking to Hamiltonians there. I discussed all of this with Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and first off asked for his explanation as to why Mr Sharma has been suspended. Essentially, he broke the caucus rules and they include, as the Prime Minister indicated, bringing the party into disrepute, also breaching confidentiality of the caucus and ultimately, teams like political party caucuses can only operate on the basis of trust. And there was a significant breach of trust that has taken place here. Yeah. I mean, it's a suspension. It's got a series of conditions around it. But it also includes the possibility or the option of mediation for Gurev to work through some of the issues that have been raised. But ultimately, as a caucus, we have to hang together as a team. And the caucus felt that that wasn't possible for Gurev at the moment. But what sort of message? does it send when you know someone raises serious allegations and they are quite serious misspending of crown funds bullying by whips collusion with parliamentary services they're then suspended instead of a fulsome investigation into as i say what are quite serious claims Yeah, well, let's pick that apart a little bit, because on the first of those, the Parliamentary Service, who are the agency who would look into any misspending, did so and said that it wasn't. Not only was it not, it was actually completely normal Mm. um, for a staff member to accompany the person from Wellington to accompany the MP up to their home base. So, no, that was already looked into. I don't actually think there's a tremendous dispute about the facts in this situation. What it comes down to is that Dr Sharma didn't appreciate some of the things he was being asked to do. There is no substantiation of any claims of bullying. Rather, there was a process he didn't like. He objected to that. He feels that he wasn't heard, but actually in terms of the serious allegations, they haven't been substantiated, and the ones that had were investigated were found not to be the case. So no, I don't believe yeah. it justifies anything beyond uh, what the process already was. Yeah, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but uh, no substantiation of the misspending, and you say, well, after an investigation into those allegations. As for the other ones, you also say unsubstantiated, but... How have they been unsubstantiated if they haven't even been looked at to see whether there is any proof to them? I know that the Prime Minister, when she spoke at her press conference, said that she had gone through, looked at the file of information. As I say, Dr Sharma's not really contesting the facts here, and she hasn't found, the Prime Minister didn't find anything there. Dr Sharma simply didn't appreciate a process that was put in place to deal with employment issues. We also have to bear in mind here there's more than um, just Dr Sharma at play. There are the staff, his employees, those former employees. We've got to look out for them as well. So it's it's the judgment of the Prime Minister that these matters have not been substantiated. Caucus's decision was based around the behaviour of Dr Sharma from when he published his Facebook post and his article in the New Zealand Herald. I don't think there's much doubt 
that amounted to a breach of our caucus rules. He claims there was a meeting on Monday night which he wasn't invited to and that at that meeting caucus decided he would be suspended. Is that the case? Absolutely not. That meeting did not in any way discuss the course of action around Dr Sharma. What it was... His name didn't was, come up at all. Well, of course it did, but, but it did not determine a course of action. What it was was an opportunity for caucus members to be able to talk about where they were at, about how they were feeling about what had happened. It was quite clear that Dr Sharma was you know, not going to be able to attend a meeting like that and be trusted. That was the whole point. Providing an environment where people could talk freely was important, but it was not a formal caucus meeting and it was not a meeting where a discussion took place around what action should uh, should happen. That happened at the formal caucus meeting that Dr Sharma chose not to attend. What, what about accusations against another one of your MPs, Anna Lork, of course, published by stuff.co.nz? Will, will they be investigated? Well, they are already the subject of a complaint and therefore an investigation process with parliamentary services. It's a fairly recent situation, as I best understand it, from the media reporting that I've seen, and therefore the process that needs to take place on that is just beginning. And this is the nature of of the situation we have. You know, there's around just over 200 people, maybe even 220 or 30 people who are employed by MPs or employed by parliamentary services to work for MPs, from time to time there will be complaints. I've worked in an Iran parliament for two decades and throughout that time, just like any medium-sized business with that number of people, you're going to see uh, complaints. Ones like the one um, involving Anna Law need to be investigated and they will be. She retains her caucus position though, doesn't she? Why not stand her down while it's being investigated? There's always a variety of different employment situations. These come up all the time and the Prime Minister and others are drawn into those when there's perhaps a pattern of behaviour or a particular situation that would might justify or warrant that. But day-to-day employment disputes are regular on both parties across Parliament as they are within most medium-sized enterprises, which is about what we are with 200 people. So it'll be looked into through those processes and any action that needs to be taken will come from there. This doesn't meet the threshold in the party leadership's view that would warrant her being stood down while the investigation's ongoing. It's an uh, employment-related matter. It's been dealt with through the appropriate processes. Any other actions will follow from that. When you spoke to First Up last week, you called the Uffindale, the Sam Uffindale affair, of course, all a bit murky. It now looks to be the case for for the Labour Party, doesn't it? It's it's pretty murky. You've got two uh, separate MPs in question here, a number of serious allegations being raised and investigations ongoing. Are you worried it looks a bit murky for your party? Well, look, undoubtedly these things being in the public arena and and people being drawn in, staff and MPs, is not good. But the reality is, that is, I'm repeating myself here, but is that, you know, when you've got more than 200 people who are employed, you will from time to time have employment issues and disputes. Dr Sharma chose to take his issues into the public arena. um, In doing so, he undoubtedly breached our caucus rules and there are consequences for that. But of course, nobody wants this to happen because, frankly, we're here to do a job on behalf of New Zealand as I spend my time working in the finance and infrastructure and sports portfolios doing my best to advance the causes of the country. And and so these things are undoubtedly distracting, uh, but we've managed the situation and dealt with the issue as a caucus and focusing on the issues that really matter now. What does Mr Sharma's fate look like? Well, that's very clear, isn't it? He's been suspended. Sorry, is he likely to stay on, though? Well, that's entirely up to him, isn't it? I mean, that's now in his hands. 
he abides by the caucus rules if he does the right thing we go through the mediation there's a path there for him if he doesn't the consequences are clear Mm. let's move to the OCR obviously up 50 basis points to three percent and Adrian Orr making some comments afterwards that basically that uh, monetary conditions need to tighten until there's restraint on spending well sufficient restraint on spending uh, and to bring inflation back to one to three percent but of course that's not forecast until mid 2024 so what does it mean in terms of OCR hikes could they continue through to that stage well, obviously, those are decisions for the Reserve Bank. We have an independent monetary policy committee that makes these decisions. What that committee has been telling us is that they recognise that their job is to get inflation into that uh, 1% to 3% band. It's always defined as being over the medium term because they have to be able to look through current circumstances, create a sustainable pathway forward. They've indicated what that is. That's monetary policy doing its job and I don't make a habit of commenting on the wisdom or otherwise of that but um, clearly they have a mandate and they have outlined a path to get there. And you you remain confident in the in the course of action they're taking? Well, this is, as I say, this is the job that they've got. We give them two roles. One is to, you know, manage price stability. The other is around maximum sustainable employment. They've outlined their pathway that uh, they've put in place to do that. It's pretty clear. I think it's well understood by, certainly by the banks and the financial sector. And, you know, that is their job. We'll get on with the job of fiscal policy where we also have to strike a balance, making sure that we continue to support people and invest in the areas that are needed to help our economy and society move forward, but also being careful with that. And um, we'll do our bit alongside our monetary policy. But Adrian Orr, he has, you only have to look online to see some of the flack he's copped in terms of handling the financial environment as it stands currently over the last uh, and over the last couple of years. But you retain confidence in him. Absolutely. And, you know, the Reserve Bank, as all central banks around the world have had to do, have had to deal with an extraordinary financial crisis, as governments had. I hear a lot of hindsight economics at the moment. If we take ourselves back to 2020, it was a very challenging and a very difficult time. And our Reserve Bank, as other central banks did, stepped up. Some of the other criticism that I've heard, particularly around issues to do with, you know, looking at areas like climate change, around the Māori access to capital and so on, I think those criticisms are unfair. That's the kind of thing that a modern central bank should be doing, looking at the issues that matter to our financial stability, because that's part of their mandate. So, no, um, the Governor will continues to have my confidence. With your sport and recreation ministerial hat on, Ian Foster looks to be locked in until the World Cup. As a leader, what's your advice for him? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure I'm in a position and, to be giving. Well, to be no, giving no, but well, well t- if, if you were, if you come on, let's let's. You're you're a leader, and we all know Grant that you've copped a, a bit of flack in your position. How do you navigate things when they become difficult? Yeah, I think it is about focusing on the you know your purpose and harking back to your values and. You know, I think the All Blacks have got a very, very strong culture, strong tradition, clearly passionate support and interest from New Zealanders. And so it is about grounding yourself and why you're doing what you're doing and and the values that you want to bring to the table. As Minister of Sport, I learned pretty early on, I don't get to pick the teams, I don't get to pick the coaches. What I do get to do is continue to support, you know, New Zealand sports people going out there and doing their thing. And I was thrilled to see the All Blacks win on Saturday. And the one thing I would say is that I believe everybody's interest are served by some certainty. We've got that now, and I hope New Zealanders will get on and back the team as we head towards the World Cup next year. 
Deputy PM Grant Foster there. Uh, Grant Foster. Lol, what a gaff. Grant Robertson. Sorry, Grant, if you're listening. My apologies. Grant Robertson talking about Ian Foster there. Uh, just before we go, a little bit of feedback. Nick, why do you have to play that dumb music? It's really annoying. It's not dumb. It's cool. It's good to listen to some music in the morning. And most people like it. That's one of very, very few complaints we get about it. I love the music. And I think it should stay. I hope National and Act were listening to that segment on UK inflation because if you listened to them, you'd think it was only happening in Aotearoa, New Zealand. That's right, Chris, it is happening everywhere, as we know. There are local levers, but it is happening everywhere. If you're on the West Coast, if you're in Nelson, do stay safe today. You must have been listening to First Up yesterday because there were no Corollas caught in rivers. That's a good thing. Again, if you're in your Mazda Demio, you come up to a river, do not drive through it. Turn around and go home and be safe and look after each other. We'll be back tomorrow. Here's Morning Report with Susie and Corinne.